0: As we stay here, as you can tell probably, we are starting a new series. Uh, If you've been coming, we finished 1 Peter, and now we're starting our Advent series. We're looking forward to Christmas, to the first coming of, of Christ. We celebrate when God became a person. God became man. The divine took on humanity And then we celebrate his life and his death and his resurrection, which brings salvation. And and while we celebrate that, we look forward to his second coming, where Jesus will come in power. He will come in glory. He will come to make all things new and right. This Advent here at Chatham, we're going to be looking at a very famous Advent passage. If you're not familiar with it, I'm so glad you're here that you can become familiar with it. If you are, We'll dive into it a little bit deeper as we look at some of the names of Jesus. So we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. So I'll read that for us, and in just a minute we'll read the whole passage. Uh, But the verse that we'll be looking at each week says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Each week, we'll look at a different name given to Jesus in this passage. This, this is a, a messianic passage looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And so today, we're going to be looking at Jesus as Wonderful Counselor. And one thing I want to do as as we get started is I want to point out the context of this passage that will help us as we go forward and and look at what it means for Jesus to be a wonderful counselor. Um, The context of this passage is hope, hope to the people of God. Isaiah has declared that judgment is coming, that Assyria is coming, Um, and then in the beginning of chapter 9 he gives hope. So I want us to read the context, I want us to read chapter 9. Uh, and we'll, we'll read it again later together as the congregation. Uh, but now I want to read it for us. This is, can be found on page 573 of your Pew Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to take one of ours. If you know someone who doesn't have a Bible, take one of the Pew Bibles. It's our gift to you. So Isaiah chapter 9, we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This passage of hope leads up to and has its fulfillment in verse 6. In verses 1 through 5, there are people who won't be in gloom and anguish anymore. They are moving from darkness to light. Joy is growing. Oppression is ending. The instruments of war will be burned. But how? How? will this happen? Well, there will be a child who will be born. This child will be king. These names, these titles, they're kingly titles. They're royal names. His rule will be absolute and endless. This king we're talking about is King Jesus. So I want us to keep that kingly context in mind as we go forward. Uh, We'll think about the first name given here, Wonderful Counselor, and my outline is this. So, first, I want us to consider why we should listen to the counsel of Jesus. Then, we'll consider and ask the question what about when I don't like what Jesus has to say? And then, lastly, we'll consider the cross. And my sermon in a sentence is short and simple Jesus is wise, so we should listen to his counsel. Jesus is wise. So we should listen to his counsel. So first, let's consider why we should listen to Jesus. And in what way we should listen to Jesus. He is called here Wonderful Counselor. And when we first think about a counselor, many images might pop into our head. They might come to our mind. We might think about a school counselor. Someone who talks to students and cares for students when they're struggling, Uh, They try to connect them to the resources that they need to get the help that they need. They do their best to give advice on potential colleges or potential career paths. School counselors can be great. We might also think about someone who is getting counseling from a counselor or a therapist. Many people are getting counseling, and the rest of us probably should be getting counseling. It can be really helpful. Counselors can help us work through difficult times and circumstances. They can often point out uh, what we don't see, and they can give strategies to improve our lives. And counselors are great and incredible. However, these are not the things that are being ascribed to Jesus here. It's not this kind of counsel. Jesus here is not a school counselor. He's not a therapist. um, As good as those things may be, his counsel is different. This is the counsel of a king. When a king gives counsel, he's not giving advice that may or may not improve your life. His counsel is not a suggestion on what you should do and what direction you might take. He's not merely giving you tools and strategies that, if you follow them, they might help you deal with your emotions or past trauma. This is counsel that's given from a king that must be followed, because he is king. And his counsel is not wonderful like we often think of the word wonderful. His counsel is not merely wonderful like the meal you might have had this past week. Hopefully you had a wonderful Thanksgiving meal. Or it's not wonderful like the lights that you may go see later on in the Christmas season. It's not even wonderful like the good night's sleep you might get if your kids are out of sleepover. <laughs> this counsel is wonderful in the sense that it is divine. It is full of wonder. It is wisdom that is far above human understanding. Later on, in chapter 55, Isaiah declares, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. His wisdom is wonderful in the sense that it is full of wonder. We wonder at it because we cannot and will not ever be able to obtain it. We won't have that kind of wisdom. It's divine wisdom, divine counsel. He sees everything the way that it actually is. This is why we should and must listen to him. And of course he would know better than us. He's the creator of everything. Who understands something better than the one who made it? In the book slash movie, The Hunger Games, probably not where you thought we were going to go, President Snow, who's the bad guy, in case you don't know, has Katniss, who's our hero, thrown into another Hunger Games. So this is the second book or second movie, if you're reading or watching. President Snow needs to have Katniss killed. She's a problem. She is, unknowingly to her, she's starting a revolution. And he wants to deal with that. So his solution is to throw in her Hunger Games. If you don't know what the Hunger Games are, they're not really games, as much as they are um, kill everybody around you and hope you don't die. So not a great place, To be, so President Snow thinks this will be a good way to get rid of his problem, to get rid of Katniss. But unbeknownst to him, there's another plan at play. There's the game maker, the one in charge of the Hunger Games, the one who decides every detail of the games how the the stadium will be made, what tools might be used to kill people, um, what weapons might be used. For the contestants, the game maker, his plan, he's a part of the revolution. His plan is to use the games that he creates to set Katniss free so that she can become the symbol of the rebellion. So he creates the game in a way that his will, his plan, will be accomplished. And he does it in a way that tricks the president. And it tricks a lot of the people, and it even tricks Katniss, who doesn't know about the plan. But he creates the game in a way that his will will be accomplished. So he knows how the game should turn out. He knows what needs to happen. There are others in the game who do know what's going on. They share the same goal as the game maker. Their goal is to have Katniss be rescued. So they follow his wisdom. They follow his counsel. And to others around including our dear Katniss and PETA, it looks like they're doing things that don't make sense. They're doing crazy things, because they don't know the plan. Eventually, though the game maker, the one who created the game, his plan works out. Katniss is rescued. So this might be a bit of a stretch, but if we think of the world as a game, not necessarily just the Hunger Games, but if we think of the world as a game, then who would know how the game works better than the game maker? Who would know how things are supposed to work than the one who creates it? Jesus has made everything. Colossians 1, 15 through 17, tells us this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. It's by the wisdom of Jesus that all things are created. It's in his wisdom that all things are held together. Jesus is the one who created the wonders of the universe. It's in his wisdom that he made the wonders of the human body, which are incredible. Human beings regularly and consistently make incredible and complex calculations and movements that we don't even think about. A silly one that, that my son Elliot discovered this week is that if you look straight and move your head while still looking straight, you still look straight. Like, it's, it's weird. Your eyes just stay, stay there. You don't have to think about that. They just do that. Your body does incredible things. Movements that if we are to, when we try to replic- replicate through computers and through robots and programs, we find that we fall short every time. We can't create a better human being. We can't create a better body. It's Jesus' wisdom that created this. Not only that, but like the illustration of the game maker in the Hunger Games, Jesus knows all the plans that everyone has. He knows everyone's will, he knows everyone's plan, including Satan and the demons and those that are working against him. Yet, in his wisdom, he orchestrates the world so that it works to accomplish his goals and his purposes. Everyone's plan, everyone's wisdom, everyone's ideas and ways are considered and then subjected to his plan, his wisdom. Jesus is wise. We should listen to him because he sees the world as it is because he created the world. So who would know it better than him? All right, I'm going to take a really big leap here and move on and ask you to agree with me That Jesus is in fact wise, that his counsel is wonderful. I know that some of you may not be convinced. Some of you have objections, you have concerns, you have questions. I'm not gonna be able to answer your specific questions, your specific concerns in this sermon. Many of those require deep and long conversations with prayer and scripture. I would encourage you to have those conversations, first, have them with Jesus. If you're wondering, can I trust Jesus? Should I trust him? Is he good? Is he wise? Talk to him first. Then I want to encourage you, talk to others who know and love you and know and love Jesus. Have those difficult conversations. What I want to do today is attempt to answer the general question. So not specific objections necessarily, but the general question of what do I do when I don't understand or agree with Jesus? What do we do then? We all come to this place. There are really only two options for what to do when we don't understand and we don't agree with the counsel of Jesus. We can either listen to him or we can ignore him. That's it. It really is that simple. Is it easy? No, but it is simple. You can either trust Jesus That he, as the creator of the universe, as the one in control of all things, as the one who is in control of life and death and everything in between, that what he says is good and good for you. Or you can ignore him and think that you know better, that someone else knows better. It comes down to trust, to faith. Will you trust Jesus or will you trust someone else? Where is your authority? Is Jesus just another option of someone to listen to? Then maybe you weigh your options, and as you weigh your options, ultimately you're relying on your own ability to decide what is true, what is right, what is wise. Or, is Jesus the authority? Is his word true? Is he good? If the answer to these questions is yes, and I believe that they are, then we have to look at what happens when we listen to Jesus and when we don't listen to Jesus. Scripture paints a picture for us over the length of its story. That picture is that there is blessing in listening to Jesus and that there is destruction in ignoring his counsel. I want to give some examples from my life and from Scripture that will hopefully illustrate the blessing of obedience and the destruction of ignoring Jesus. Hopefully, this will help us see the wisdom of Jesus, and it will help us know what to do when we don't understand or we don't agree with it. So, my first two examples come from, from my life, and they are the easiest to see and understand and, and be like, yeah, there was good counsel and there was bad counsel. Um, I have two distinct memories of ignoring the counsel of my parents. There are probably many more, and I'm sure that if you talk to my mom after the sermon, she'll be somewhat happy to let you know more of them. But here are two, two really clear examples. Um, the first is, um, well, in each of these, I, I found that my parents were always trying to keep me from having fun. <laughs> they were trying to keep me from living my life to the fullest. So I was right to ignore what they were saying. The first is uh, with my mom at the grocery store. She told me to stop running in the store. Well, of course, I knew better. And of course, I would be fine. This is fun. The store is boring. I've been here a while. We're in the checkout line. What else am I going to do besides run? So I ignored her and ran straight into the magazine rack and ended up with two stitches above my eye. The second memory I have, and I don't know if it was before or after the grocery store incident, uh, but I was at home and my dad was working on the porch doing some kind of boring project, and I wanted to play and I wanted to run outside, and, and my parents told me, my dad told me, put your shoes on before you go outside, there's nails out there. Well, my dad didn't know that to stop and put shoes on, that takes way too long. Besides, it's a lot of fun to run outside barefoot. It's more fun. You get to experience the world as it was meant to be experienced. So I ignored my dad, and I walked outside without my shoes on and stepped on a nail and was hurt. These two examples, they're simple. They're easy to see that I was the one who lacked wisdom. My parents' counsel was, in fact, good. It's easy to see that as adults who have lived longer, experienced more life, generally know more than children. And they generally have their best interest in mind. It's easy to see, as a 34-year-old, to look back and say, my parents knew what they were talking about. It's also easy to say in a vacuum that Jesus is wise. It's easy for us in the church, in a vacuum on a Sunday, to say, Jesus is wise. And we can point to really clear examples. We can say, of course Jesus is wise. Look, he says murder is wrong. Everyone agrees with that. We're we're great with that. We even like it when he says, Jesus tells you to love people. That's good. In general, we can agree on that. It's much harder when we don't agree, when we don't understand, when things are not quite as clear or as simple as they may be in my two illustrations. Now, to me as a child, they were not simple. I thought I knew better. I thought I saw the world more clearly. The reality is that, that to God, we are his children. He does see reality more clearly than we do. He knows not to go out on the porch because there are nails there. He knows that if you run in the grocery store, you might run into someone or something and get hurt. We often think like I did as a child, that if I were in charge, if I were in charge of my life, if I could do whatever I wanted, then things would be better. Or, when we're really arrogant, we like to think, if I could run the world, I could set everything straight. It's hard When everything in our body, in our heart, in our head, in the world around us is saying what Jesus is saying is wrong and backwards, it's outdated, it's oppressive, it's mean, do we really believe that Jesus is wise? Will we listen to him, or will we rely on our own wisdom and the wisdom of the world? There is blessing in listening to Jesus. There's wisdom in that. And there's destruction in ignoring him, even when we don't understand what he's doing. Here are some examples from Scripture that unless you trust in the wisdom of God, unless the people trusted in the wisdom of God, don't make sense. The first is the example of Gideon. A few verses before our verse. We're reminded of the day of Midian. If you're a good biblical scholar... You would know already, and if if you're not, you would read that and you're like, I don't know what the day of Midian is, so I should go find out. So you go and you you read and you find out that the day of Midian comes from the book of Judges. Gideon was a judge who was tasked by God to deliver the people from the Midianites. He was a reluctant judge at first. He tested the Lord. And the Lord graciously humored and encouraged Gideon uh, towards obedience And then God said, I'm going to use you to free the Midianites. We're going to go to battle. We're going to go to war. Well, conventional kingly wisdom says, you look at your army, you look at the opposing army, you say, they have 10,000 people, we need 20,000, then we'll win. Conventional wisdom says, they have strong fighters, we need stronger fighters, then we will win. power That's what gets us the victory. The wisdom from above, the wonderful counsel of God, said to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many people. You have 32,000 people. That's too many. Sends them home. So over half left. 10,000 people remained. That's crazy. You sent over half your army home. Now you want to go to battle. No, not yet. Because then God said, that's way too many. Send home more. So 97% of the army left. 300 people remained. This does not make sense. This is not how you win battles, this is not earthly wisdom. It only makes sense if the one giving this wisdom, if the one giving this counsel is the one who creates and knows how the world works, is the one who goes to battle for you. Well, as it went, of course God did know what he was doing. The Israelites went into battle and 300 people defeated the army of Midian. We know that God fought with them and for them, In his wisdom, he chose to do it this way. This is not conventional wisdom. This is not earthly wisdom. This is hard. When God says, go to battle with a fraction of an army, we want to say, God, that doesn't make sense. We have to trust that God knows what he's doing. Similarly, later in Isaiah 31, Isaiah says, woe to all who go to Egypt for their power and their strength, and their chariots, and their horses, because they are strong. Again, this is what conventional wisdom would say. Conventional wisdom says, make sure you have a strong army, and then make sure you have other strong armies to back you up. That's what you need. God is defying what we think of when we come to wisdom and kingly counsel. We think we should rely on strength and power. God says, if you are wise, you will rely on me. You will trust me. Don't seek worldly wisdom. Don't seek worldly power. Trust my counsel. It is wonderful. You won't believe it. You won't understand it until you see it. But trust in my wisdom. Then you will experience blessing, joy, life, and freedom. Then we have a negative example, probably the most famous. The example of Adam and Eve points out that not listening to the counsel of God leads to death and destruction. There was clear blessing in obedience. God had commanded Adam and Eve, live here, tend to the earth, cultivate it, Eat whatever you want, except for one tree. You have everything that you could possibly need. There is great blessing in obedience. But just one thing, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. There is destruction in disobedience. From the beginning, this has been clear. Blessing in life and listening to God's counsel, and death and destruction from ignoring it. Eve was tricked by Satan, someone cunning, someone who lied, someone who gave bad counsel, worldly wisdom. Eve listened, and she and Adam ate of the fruit. And what happened? Judgment came, death came, destruction came. This is always true. The wisdom of Satan can and will always lead to life and blessing. And the counsel of Satan can and will only lead to death and destruction. So what about you? What do you do when you disagree with the wisdom of King Jesus? Some of us who have been Christians for a long time, we might be tempted to say, I never disagree with God that's more than likely not true, at least at first. If we never come to God or the Bible and say, I don't like that. I don't understand that. That doesn't sit right with me. I think that's offensive. Or something similar. Then we're either not being honest with ourselves and those around us, or we're just not reading well. Tim Keller says, if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. Of course we won't always see things the way that he does. If we did, we would be God. We see things right here. God sees everything the way it is. So since we will disagree, since we will think things might be offensive, since some things won't sit right with us, we must decide what to do when that happens. We must say, Jesus, your counsel is wonderful. I see a very limited view, and I'm not even positive about what I see. Not even sure that the the small portion of reality that I see is right. I will trust in your wisdom instead of my own. I will trust in your wisdom instead of my heart. I will trust in your wisdom instead of the counsel of the world. This means that when it comes to things like sexuality and gender, we must say, Jesus, your counsel is wonderful. When it comes to food, when it comes to work, our attitudes, our work ethic... Jesus, your counsel is wonderful. What you call and say is good, is good. When it comes to things like the church and worship, Jesus, you are wise. You know what we need. You know that we need your body, and you know what is best. When it comes to sin and our desires when our bodies and hearts rage against us, declaring that sin is good and God is holding back from us, we must say, Jesus knows better than I do. When it comes to seemingly crazy things that Jesus says, things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, things like, blessed are the poor in spirit, we must decide that he is right. Not us. He sees the world correctly. He's the creator of the universe. He has ordered everything to work a certain way. And when we try to use his creation in a way that was unintended, death and destruction follow. Lastly, I want us to consider The wisdom of the cross. There's one final example of the wisdom of Jesus. One example that didn't make sense to anyone who was seeing it, yet it changed the world. The cross. This is something that Jesus spoke about fairly often. Each time he did, no one understood him. His disciples, his closest friends, Sometimes they just moved on. Sometimes they were like, I don't understand what Jesus is talking about. He says a lot of things that I don't understand, and I don't understand this one. He talks about he needs to die and come back to life. We'll just move on and pretend we understand, or we'll just uh, ignore it and hope it doesn't come up again on the test. That There was no test, um, or the test was very different. Uh, There was one particular time, though. We can really see how different Jesus' plan was. From what his followers expected, what his friends expected. This is Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside. And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are setting your mind on the things of God. On, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was using his own wisdom and trying to give counsel to Jesus. What Jesus said didn't make sense. This is not what leaders do. How could salvation come this way? How could the Messiah come and die? And what's this about being raised on the third day? Lord, this will never happen to you. Death is the end. Being killed means you lost. We need victory. We need to win battles, not lose them. We need strength. Jesus said, this is from Satan. You are thinking small. You are thinking worldly. My wisdom is wonderful. My counsel is so far above yours. You don't know what I know. If you did, then you would plan things like I planned them. The cross doesn't make sense unless you trust in Jesus. Later on in the gospel... Jesus is hanging on the cross, and he's being mocked by those around him, both on the cross with him and those watching. This is Matthew 27, verses 39 through 44. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Jesus' wisdom didn't make sense to anyone who was watching. In fact, the cross seemed to prove that Jesus got it wrong. That Jesus was just another failed rebellion. Everything he did was all for nothing. All his big claims can't be backed up when you're dead. His closest friends have left him. One of them even went so far as to curse, saying, I don't know him. He hangs naked and dying and helpless. This is not what wisdom looks like. This is what failure looks like. I used to really not like this part of the story. Not just because it's hard to read things about Jesus being mocked. But because Jesus was allowing people to mock him. He could have just come down from the cross. Absolutely, come down from the cross and we'll believe. And I thought, yes, Jesus Come down from the cross, they will believe. Show your power, show your might. My thinking was much like Peter's. I didn't like Jesus being shown as weak. I knew he was strong. Yet, if Jesus had followed my counsel, I would be dead in my sin. Praise Jesus, his counsel is wonderful. Jesus humbly and powerfully stayed on the cross and took the wrath of his Father directed at sin. Sin that he did not commit. Sin that I committed. So that I can receive Jesus' righteousness? Oh, the counsel of Jesus is wonderful indeed. That a sinner like me can be redeemed and forgiven through the death and resurrection of Jesus... Jesus sees the whole picture. He knows what's going on. He knew death wasn't the end from him. When others mocked him, they mocked him for what was actually his salvation. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him. So God did deliver him. Just not in the way they expected. They they thought, if God will deliver him, then, then something miraculous will happen here, and he will come down from the cross. But instead, God delivered Jesus through death. It raised him again on the third day. Death could not hold Jesus; it had no claim on him. Satan could not defeat Jesus; he had no power over him. Sin couldn't stain Jesus; his blood was too clean. Jesus rose from the dead and gave life to all who believe in him. This is the wisdom of Jesus. That if you repent from your sin and trust in his death and resurrection, that you will be saved. And when he comes back, because he will come back, and we can trust his counsel, we can trust his wisdom, we can trust that when he comes back, it's the right time. When he comes back, you will be transformed to be like him. You will be with him fully and without sin. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace.